Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, and we're in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. In this episode, I'll be discussing some of Dr. Tim Fort's research in lighting design and staging and also his amazing involvement in the theatre for the last 46 years. Uh, Let me provide a little bit of background uh, information about Professor Fort. Dr. Tim Fort is a professor and chair of graduate studies, uh, graduate programs in the Dan School of Drama and Music at Queen's. He received his PhD from the University of Toronto's Graduate Centre for the Study of Drama, and much of his research examines late 19th century lighting design and staging. Dr. Fort has designed lighting and or scenery for over 200 productions, including the world premieres of And All for Love at the National Arts Centre and Judith Thompson's Hot House at the Isabel Bader Centre. In Kingston, he recently directed and designed Unity 1918, Candide, and the House of Martin Gare in the Rotunda Theatre. Dr. Fort has also served as the producing director at the Weston Playhouse in Vermont since 1988. Uh, Weston is a hub for many Broadway and regional designers and performers. At Weston, he directed over 60 productions, including Les Miserables and Avenue Q. Tim, it's a pleasure to have you here on uh, Flying Date with Knowledge. I'm, I'm going to throw the mic open. You've got <laughs> such a rich uh, background. I don't think my questions that I prepared really do justice. I mean, we were talking before we uh, we opened our, our microphones, and I, I just like our listeners to hear have our have you talk some more. It's just fascinating. <laughs> I, I was trying to think of where even to start uh, with where I've wound up, which is. Uh, just about to retire from more than 30 years of uh, being one of the managing producing directors at a, a theater company in Vermont. But um, And I was going to say, I'll, I'll probably start with my mother taking me to see the original production of Sound of Music. We lived not very far from New York back in 1960. So um, I, I suppose I was a bit by the bug then. Or when I think about lighting design and, and how I wound up in that, I... I, I, I really don't quite understand how this happened, but somehow we were so close to New York that my fifth grade class got taken to the Metropolitan Opera, which you would think was a bad idea to bring fifth graders to see. And it was uh, Wagner, it was the, or it was the Fliegende Hollander, the Flying Dutchman. Oh my God, like an impenetrable <laughs> it, it, kind exactly. of a... Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so... Of course, I don't remember anything about the opera, but they wouldn't let us out to wander the halls of the Met, so they kept us in during intermission. And that's when they changed the set. And that I remember. I remember watching them and and thinking how fascinating it was that they could move all that stuff and these big things became other big things. So somehow along the line, I I got this fascination, this passion with theater, and it's one of those things that's often incurable. And so... By the time I got to be an undergraduate, I uh, was doing a lot of things in the theater. And the reason I I think I 
became so enamored with the theater was that there are so many aspects of it that you can work and you can indeed act, which usually draws people there in the first place. But uh, I had one of my instructors was a was a lighting designer for the undergraduate all the shows, and he asked me to come up one day and and sit in the grid and <laughs> and move lights around with him. And I loved the man, and then I I got fascinated by how lighting was able to paint. Um, I had never even thought about lighting when you watched the theater shows. So uh, when I started to understand that this was this kind of subversive talent that you could have, that you could affect how people looked at things and understood things, and you could enrich them without them even understanding it themselves, uh, I got fascinated by it. And I also realized that as a lighting designer, which I learned mostly from my um, my undergraduate instructor, but I also started to learn by just doing it. People kept asking me to do it because nobody else seemed to want to do lighting design. So one thing led to another, and um, I was managing a, a studio theater during my PhD years in uh, in Toronto, and everyone would come into the studio with a show almost every week, but they had no set or lights or anything. So I'd watch the show once and I have to come up with a lighting design for it. And it was a great, great education. And so what happened is while I was working on my PhD, of course, you, um, you're broke when you're doing a PhD. I didn't have time to do the other things that I normally do in theater, which is direct a show or act in a show, but I had time to go in for three or four days and do the lighting designs. So I wound up doing lots and lots of lighting designs in Toronto and um, at one point, I was nominated for Dora Award, and I, I joke about this with the I did not win the Dora Award because another show written by one of my colleagues, John Lazarus, uh, won the Dora Award. So we have a friendly rivalry. Anyway, so over the years, I wound up doing a lot of things in the theater, um, and one of them was lighting design. And as I got interested in that, I I thought, well. Uh, if I'm going to do a PhD, I have to do a, a, a research area, and this is a both a live and current area, but it's also one that has a, a storied history. And so I decided I, I, I should look at lighting design at the turn of the century, or just a little before, that is the turn of the, the 20th century, um, because that was when gas lighting became electric lighting. Now, you'd think everyone would go, hallelujah, we won't have to worry about our theaters burning down anymore. But the new technology, which was electricity, everyone was afraid of. So one of the most interesting things to me was that when uh, one of the most famous theaters was the Savoy, where the Gilbert and Sullivan musicals were uh, first done. And in 1881, when they put electricity, which was one of the first theaters to have electricity, everyone was afraid to come to the theater. So uh, Richard Doyley Cart, who was the producer, would come out before the shows. He would pull out the lights from the footlights, which would be electric lights. He'd have a hammer, and he'd say, bring on the lights. He'd break a light in front of the audience and say, see, it's safe. <laughs> Nothing burns down. So, um, so that period seemed really interesting to me to talk about how people came to grips with a new technology. And among the things that could happen with new technology like electric light is that you could actually take the lights totally off without you know turning the gas off and having to relight it. You could, of course, color the light. You could focus the light better. All kinds of things happened during that period. And really the principles of painting with light 
that we use today in their initial forms all happened during that period. So that's how my research happened. That's that's terrific. You know, you, one of the things you said about how technology uh, impacts people is something that's particularly interesting to to me in terms of where theater might be going in the future. Mm -hmm. So we have gas going to electricity. What do you see from your perspective with so much experience in the theater about technology in the future? I know we've got virtual reality now and augmented reality. What's your view? Yeah, I wonder about uh, virtual reality and uh, augmented, all those realities um, may or may not ever, I, I think the one thing about live theater is that it's live human beings right in front of you and can touch them. And maybe that's the reason the theater has survived so long. So I don't know for sure whether uh, I think that those technologies will continue. They're more likely to affect film, I would think, than the live theater, which um, it seems to be going the other way with live theater in a good way for me. I, I think people are doing a lot more productions than what we'd call found spaces. In a, I saw a, um, a show at the beginning of the summer in Brian's record option. Hmm. And it could before only it be flooded. there. Yeah, before it flooded, sadly. Um, and it, that it could only have been there because it was about two people trying to find records. Um, and But I just stood there and watched them proceed around the area and do the show as written. And there are lots of examples of that, people putting theater productions in a place where it actually... Um, reflects the, the space itself. I, uh, in my theater company in Vermont, where I've worked uh, since 1973, we had an old um, rod and gun club <laughs> that uh, we used as a second space. And it, it had uh, very low ceilings. It was hard to light there. You could actually refocus the light by just standing on a chair. <laughs> but um, but it was, it looked, this rod and gun club looked like a rod and gun club. So uh, for the first two productions I directed there, first was a, a show called Pump Boys and Dinettes, which was set in a roadside diner because there's a kitchen and everything in it. And the second one was um, was a show ab- about um, uh, the USO, sec- Second World War. Um, it was called uh, Canteen, uh, Springtime Canteen. Uh, um, but anyway, it was about putting on USO shows. And again, this Rod and Gun Club looked like a um, one of those old canteens where entertainment for the troops was held. So I, I think that may be the – it is indeed the opposite of virtual reality in, in some ways. But it's, it's uh, getting back to that very real route that you – that people that authenticity that I think people are looking for in the theater. I think that I'd underline that word authenticity or uh, democrat, uh, democratization. Mm-hmm. Um, there, anyway, not to say that the larger productions, the West Side Stories, are right. are, are going to go you know out of the picture, but maybe there'll be more of this uh, uh, street level kind of uh, experience. I, I really hope so. And and uh, you know, speaking, I think you know that I've just finished directing West Side Story, which is a huge. Uh, I had 27 people, and that's small for West Side Story and having to dance and, and sing and so forth on stage because one of the other areas that I got interested in, maybe looking back at Sound of Music, was musical theater where even though I am i can't dance for the <laughs> to save my life, I, I seem to have a an ability to maybe cast people who can and work with them. And, um, and I think shows like West Side Story 
also represent a, a growing trend and, and an interesting one in the theater and in really all of art, which is representation and how you look at works of art that talk about other cultural experiences. Because, of course, West Side Story, um, one of the base stories in it is a, a conflict between the Jets and the Sharks. And the, the Jets are, um, are white, uh, tough kids, and the Sharks are Puerto Rican kids. And getting that cultural examination right, of course, it was the, the show itself was written by four old Jewish men. But, um, but the point is, as you do a show like that now, you want to be very careful that you, um, that you represent cultures properly on stage. And this, of course, West Side Story is a classic that's known, but a lot of underrepresented cultures are finally getting their voices heard playwrights are being produced more um, and the people who both want to act and design and so forth from different cultures, which is our way of understanding different cultures better, are joining this dialogue. But it's it's been a long time and it's difficult and we know that uh, Western culture has privileged not only white uh, writers and artists but generally male ones. And I think one of the things that I find uh, encouraging but it's difficult growing pains is the way that uh, theatrical art is trying to incorporate more voices and more ethnicities and more ages and genders and all those things that were very simplified in earlier times. And I, I would say that um, the great poetic dramas and, and dramatists like Shakespeare allow for all kinds of ways to interpret and reinterpret. And that, that's hopeful, too. So we don't have to lose Shakespeare and still wake up to more modern culture. Well said. Very well said. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guests to tell us a joke, recite a short poem or inspirational quotation, or reference a song related to their research or their personal motivation. Uh, so, Tim... Give us, uh, give us the, your thought here. <laughs> well, it, anybody who knows me, well, any of my students or colleagues know that if you walk into my office, I have a wall of Stephen Sondheim posters. I'm a, a big fan of, of Sondheim, who is arguably the most important composer of musical theater uh, in recent memory. He's influenced more recent people like Lin-Manuel Miranda, who did Hamilton. He was influenced by uh, Oscar Hammerstein, who, of course, wrote the lyrics for um, uh, sound of music, so it all ties together. Anyway, I thought um, that anybody uh, who knows me would be surprised if I didn't quote something from Stephen Sondheim. To uh, and, and one of my favorite songs of his is from a, a musical called Into the Woods, which was recently filmed. Um, and it is a song that he talks about. He's, he's often kind of verbose and sometimes cynical with his lyrics, but this was one of his most optimistic uh, songs, and it was called No One Is Alone. And uh, if, if Into the Woods, if you've seen it, or even if you haven't, you should know that um, it's a two-part piece. And after the first, it's it got fairy tales. And after the first act, you think everyone's going to live happily ever after. But it's typical Sondheim that he wants to see what happens after happily ever after. And a giant comes down and changes things, um, the, the wife of the giant that has been slain. And so many of our main characters are now gone, and there's an odd group of people left at the end realizing <laughs> that um, maybe their lives have changed. So in No One Is Alone, I, I'll, 
I'll just quote a little bit of the lyric, which I think is, is quite moving. Um, and it, it goes, sometimes people leave you halfway through the wood. Others may deceive you. You decide what's good. You decide alone, but no one is alone. People make mistakes, fathers, mothers. People make mistakes holding to their own, thinking they're alone. Honor their mistakes. Everybody makes one another's terrible mistakes. Witches can be right. Giants can be good. You decide what's right. You decide what's good. Just remember, someone is on your side. Someone else is not. While you're seeing your side, maybe you forgot they are not alone. No one is alone. That's beautiful and powerful. And powerful. Uh, my guest uh, in this episode of uh, Blind Date with Knowledge has been Dr. Tim Fort. Tim's a professor and chair of uh, graduate programs in the Dan School of Music and Drama at Queen's. If you have a question about anything related to research that you would like discussed by our guests, or if you have any comments about today's conversation with Tim, please email me. Barry Kaplan at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.